0: That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE.
1: This is the Authority Podcast, where we talk with people who are the authority on their subjects. I am the creator Jethro Jones. Join us as we discuss a wide range of topics from education to sociology. To high performance and to anything in between. We are a proud member of the B Podcast Network. You can find more of our shows at BeePodcastnetwork.com. I am excited to have Dr. Ruth Gautian on the program today. Uh, she is the Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology and former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Will Cornell Medicine. During her extensive career, she has personally coached and mentored thousands of people ranging from undergraduates to faculty members. As assistant dean for mentoring, she oversaw the success of nearly 1,800 faculty members at Wheel Cornell Medicine. Currently, she researches the most successful people of our generation, including Nobel laureates, astronauts, CEOs, and Olympic champions, in order to learn about their habits and practices so that we may optimize our own success. She is the author of the book *The Success Factor: Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Business Performance*. Ruth, welcome! So happy to have you here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. As a fellow educator, this is going to be this is going to be fun.
1: Yes, it will be. I, I think we have no choice but to make it fun. So, um, your book, *The Success Factor*, is really awesome. I am very much loving it. And one part, um, so you talk about high achievers and success, and then you talk about four elements of success, and one of those I want to talk about is intrinsic motivation, and there's so much more we could go into, and I could probably talk to you for 10 hours, as I'm sure most people could, and you could probably expound on these things for about 10 hours, but I wanted to talk about intrinsic motivation. I wanted to start, however, with your story of becoming a soccer player. Can you share (laughs) that with us?
2: Ah, yes. You definitely read the book if you brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know in school when they you you can tell who watched the movie and who read the book. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up, uh, it it was a time where during recess, the boys played soccer and the girls traded stickers. We had albums of Mm -hmm. stickers and you would trade them with the other girls. And if you had googly eyes, that was a hot commodity, right? That was extra. Well, I was not interested in this hot commodity sticker exchange. I wanted to kick a ball. I had energy, I wanted to kick a ball. And my teacher, I I approached my teacher and he said, well, girls don't play soccer. And I said, I I don't think I said anything, but I went to the library that Friday and I took out every book they had with pictures of girls playing soccer. Because remember, this was around 1980. You didn't have women's soccer, you didn't see it on television. You know, this teacher basically announced what he was not seeing, girls don't play soccer. But I wanted to, so I took out all of these library books and Monday morning, I come into school and put this two or three foot tall pile of books on his desk and I said, I'd like to revisit that conversation about girls playing soccer. And he had no choice but to let me play. The problem was there was no girls team. So I had to play with the boys. The boys didn't really care for this. I was put in the, you know, in the goalie position and they were not, they were not gentle, but you know what made me awesome. Made me a great player. Because I surrounded myself with people who were much better than I was. I had no choice but to rise up. And I played all through high school.
1: From oh, fifth
2: grade all the way through 12th.
1: That's awesome. Always with boys? Were you on the boys team?
2: By high school, there was a girls team.
1: That's good. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: That's I got, awesome. I got to play with my own. But we, we trained together with the boys.
1: Yeah. That's well, great. the reason why I love that story is because as we're talking about intrinsic motivation, you know, it... It's one of those things that makes it so that people can overcome the things that are in front of them. And a teacher saying you can't play soccer because you're a girl, you you just had to find a way to show that that excuse is no longer valid. Sorry. (laughs) And that's exactly what you did. So. Right. But you had to have that intrinsic motivation, right?
2: So that was really that was a blend of that intrinsic motivation, which is the first principle and the work ethic, which is the second principle. Where when faced with challenges, you don't take no line down. Low is no, unless it's your personal safety or your body. No is the starting point of a conversation. No really means not yet. I just had to think of a strategy to convince him that I could play soccer. So I did it with evidence. I did it with data. I knew he loved political dramas. I came in with my evidence. <laughs> yeah. And 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 there it was. So no was not yet. And then he had no choice.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's great. So no is the starting point of a conversation. That's a, a phrase that we don't always want our kids, our students to understand, because then yeah. that means they're going to argue with us. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Tell us a little bit more about that idea of no being the starting point.
2: But that's really who we want them to become, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want them, you know, it's easier if we tell them no and they don't don't argue. But the ones who will try to convince us, those are the ones you wanna keep your eye on because those are the ones that have that spark. Those are the ones that will not take failure lying down. Those are the ones who will fear not trying more than they fear failing. When they hear no, They think, what is the strategy I haven't thought of yet to convince you? And we know every classroom has a few of those kids. And you know, those are the ones you want to watch out for, because while it may be a pain right now, those are the ones who later are going to be the ones we're most proud of.
1: Mm -hmm. And, And why is it that we're so proud of people who push through the no when so much in education, especially, is focused on compliance?
2: Yeah, well, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> about why we have so much compliance. Um, but if you want innovation, you can't be satisfied with status quo. Innovation is all about pushing through status quo. It's about taking two disparate points and finding new ways to connect them or connecting them in a way to create something brand new. It's doing something new with something that's old. That's innovation. That's how we got Netflix, Mm -hmm. right? That's why we no longer have Blockbuster. It's constantly pushing through the status quo. The the people who are able to do that, the people who, for them, the journey is more exciting than that, that end goal. It's about what can I learn through the journey? They love that challenge. That channel, that challenge, that hustle, that's what they get so excited about. The end result is nice, but you know, once we get it, it's it's fleeting. We're excited for a little bit, but then, you know, we move on to the next thing. But that journey, that that's they salivate over that.
1: Yeah. Now, not everybody salivates over that, right?
2: Not everyone. But that's because we didn't tap into their intrinsic motivation. And those people might be so focused on the end goal that they're not even enjoying the process. They're not learning the process. It's all about getting the right answer. Mm -hmm. Do you know how you got to that right answer? If I took out one variable, would you know what to do? That's why you need the process.
1: Mm -hmm. So why, when you talk about somebody being so focused on the end goal that they're not even, paying attention to the journey, what causes people to be focused on that? And and how do we get back to enjoying the the process of doing things instead of just focusing on the end result?
2: Well look, we're we're rewarding constantly those that get a hundred. What about those who got a 95 and how to overcome so much or the 80, right? We're very, very focused in our culture, we're very focused on the end results. But I want to tell you why the end result is not nearly as important. Because if that was your goal, what happens when you meet it? What happens?
1: Well, you've bet it. That that's the goal, right?
2: (laughs) And then but then and then what?
1: Then you just set a new one, right?
2: Well, not everyone knows how to do that. So when I interviewed the Nobel Prize winners, they won the Nobel. I don't know of a single one who quit doing science just because they won the Nobel. Mm -hmm. Right now, for them, getting the Nobel was never a goal. That was something that happened because they did good work, which was their goal. Right now, I every Olympian, I always ask them, I say, can you show me your medal? And they have to go rummaging through. It's under the bed. (laughs) It's in the nightstand. It's uh, in the safe. It's in the box. Uh, a few of them had it, uh, Apollo Ono is one of them. And then I, I spoke to another one today in a brown paper bag in the sock tour. Well, why? It's an Olympic medal. Why aren't you wearing it to the supermarket? I said it was never about the medal. That's a chapter in my life. It's not the entire story. And those are the ones who didn't crash and burn when they got their gold medals at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. They took the lessons learned and found ways to apply it to new things.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. So I want to share an opposite example of that, of a failure that I experienced. I was an English major, and when I was 18, I walked into class for the final exam. And the professor said, you know, Jethro, even if you ace this final exam, you're still not going to pass the class. You will still end up (laughs) with an F. And so there's really no point for you being here. And so I love, I love your reaction, <laughs> but I said, okay, fine. And so then I left and, um, and I didn't take the final because there was no point. And, and it was fine because I was, I was not interested at all in being successful in that class, but that was my major. That was the first major course that I had. And, I could have changed my major or done something different, but I came back later um, after getting some maturity and some of my own intrinsic motivation, and then I totally aced that class and all my classes after that. And yeah. what I learned from that situation was that, uh, I had learned this in many other situations, which we won't get into, but the, the process of school is really just a game. You have to know what the rules are and how to play successfully. But more importantly... Right. As in, life. As in life. Yep. And in business and every other aspect. But more importantly for me is I realized that if I don't care, then I, I don't need to be successful. And so for me, the goal was not to get a 4.0. That came when that was no longer the goal. And this idea that you mentioned with the Olympians and the Nobel laureates was the idea is not to get that end prize to achieve that thing but the goal is to continue to be better. What is the goal when it's not to be the, the end goal?
2: So there's always a bigger purpose, right? That, that's always what, why they're doing it. And your story, I think everyone can find this story within themselves. It's, it's very similar to mine, I didn't get an F, but bachelors and masters, I was doing it because it was the expectation. Right. I studied business. You finish high school, you go to college, you go to grad school. This is what you do. I did the work. I don't know that I did anything above, above and beyond what was, was expected. But when I decided to go back to get my doctorate, I was 43 years old and I was working full-time and raising my family and had elder care for my parents. And This time it was for me. I wanted this so badly. It's very different when you want it that badly. You can't say I had more time than when I was in undergrad or grad school. I had no free time. No free time at all. I was waking up at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning to get the readings done. I was writing papers every single night. There was no free time. But I loved it so much that not only did I do the readings, you know how they have required readings and then recommended readings? I did all the recommended readings because I couldn't get enough of it. I reached out to the authors. I reached out to the professors. It, It was intrinsic. And that's one of the stories that I actually shared in the book and the success factor. I remember one of the classes when you're getting your doctorate, there's all these required classes you have to take. Then there's a um, a qualifying paper and a, a test you need to take. And then you can start your research towards your dissertation. Between that test and starting your, your research, there's a class you need to take. And I remember the professor, Dr. Marie Volpe. This is at Columbia University Teachers College. Every single person had to go around the room. Why are you doing this? Why would you put yourself through this? Getting the doctorate is very isolating. It's a ton of work. Nobody in your family or your friends could you have a conversation with. They don't really understand what you're going through. Why why are you doing this to yourself? You have a full-time job. You have a good life. And I remember sitting there listening to everybody's responses. This one wants it for a promotion. This one wants it for the recognition. This one wants it because they have this burning question. They really need to figure out the answer. And everyone is is giving their responses. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this one will finish. This one will finish. This one won't finish. This one won't finish. What turned out, I had 100% accuracy rate. Mm -hmm. The people who were doing it for themselves finished, did line one, which is the highest level you can get, and in record time. Those who are doing it for the promotions, the recognition, the bonus, all those what we call extrinsic motivation, to this day, years later, they haven't finished their degree. They're what we call ABD, all but dissertation. Yep. And they're likely going to stay that way because they haven't figured out their why. They were doing it for recognition from other people That's extrinsic motivation that will not keep your light burning. That's a great way to deplete yourself. That's a great way to get burnt out. But if you're doing it for yourself, no amount of pressure at work, no amount of helping your family, no amount of the other stressors will stop you from hitting this goal.
1: Yeah. You know, and and this podcast for me is a good example of that exact thing um, because nobody ever says, Hey, Jethro, can I pay you to do that podcast? Or can I promote you because you're doing that podcast? None of that ever happens. And I've done your episode 511, I think. And none of, none of those things beforehand. I've never missed a week. I've always had one ready to go. And, and it's because it's what I want. Cause I want to talk with people like you who can give me insight on how to live a better life and how to be a better leader. And truly, that has been uh, so amazing for me, and even when it's been really hard, and I have wanted to do anything else in the world besides record a podcast, I've still done it. And I remember when I was moving to Alaska, (laughs) we were in Canada, it was like 1130 at night, and it was a Saturday night, and we were driving up there, and I was like, oh my goodness, I have not, I didn't publish a podcast for tomorrow. And they go out on Sundays. And so I got up at 1130 and recorded a podcast uh, there in the campsite, not like somewhere fancy in a nice recording booth, but in the campsite so that I could put something out because I had committed to myself, not to anybody else to do that. And I I still remember that night saying, I have to get up and do this. I don't have a choice at this point because I've already made, made the choice that this is what it's going to be. Before we move on, let's hear from our sponsors. Now, in education, we talk about kids having motivation all the time or teachers having motivation, but you cannot give someone intrinsic motivation. But how do you help them find their own intrinsic motivation? Because everybody is motivated to do something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think first we have to start with finding the intrinsic motivation in the teachers. Finding why they do this, getting back to their why. Why is it that you love what you're doing? Because it could be that what you love doing before, you may not love doing now. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Your why is still the same. You want to help, right? You want to educate, but maybe you want to do it in a different way. Have you ever stopped to think about that? And I actually take people through a passion audit to really figure that out. It's a three-column exercise that differentiates between what you enjoy doing, what you don't enjoy doing, what you are good at but don't enjoy doing, what you would do for free if you could, all of these kinds of questions to really get people to start thinking. And I I give people prompts which really start to peel those layers of the onion. And if your listeners wanna get the passion audit, they can write on my website. It's ruthgotiancom slash passion audit. Now, how do we do this for children? Well, I am, my expertise is in adult learning. Um, so it would be more the, the teachers and principals. But I think with the children, it's really finding out where is their curiosity. When you can tap into their curiosity, That's going to start giving you insight into what it is that they love doing. Where is it that they have all the patience in the world, right? I can write. I could sit and write for hours and hours and hours. I produce Forbes articles each and every week. Ask me to do something creative, like a social media post, a PowerPoint (laughs) post, a poster. You've got the wrong person. I can't do that where other people can do that for hours and hours and hours. So I think start to pay attention to where their focus is, what it is that they enjoy doing, what is it they're doing on the weekends on their free time. That'll give you a lot of insight.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things I talk about on this podcast all the time is the idea of student driven learning where kids are driving what they want to do with the things that they're interested in. And it makes such a huge difference. They learn it faster, deeper, And they retain it longer and they don't forget the lessons that they have learned when it's something that they really want to learn themselves. And I think that we sometimes get too focused on standards and what we think they need to learn and don't recognize that a lot of those things will just come as a result of them having to learn other things that they're actually more interested in.
2: Yeah, that's so true. You know, it's interesting. I, um, my the book is dedicated. The book "The Success Factor" is dedicated to my dad, who passed away in August 2020. Mm. But for the years leading up to it, he would always come up with a um, just files from home that he found from my childhood, and I've never shared this before. Oh,
1: Deborah. <laughs> an exclusive here on the Transformative Principle Podcast.
2: Um, this is this is an exclusive. This is my. <laughs> Stanford Achievement Test, oh, from the eighth grade. I don't know if they still have that. Let me put this in perspective. I read seventy to hundred books a year. I've written textbooks. I've written the book "The Success Factor for Lay Audiences." I write for academic journals. I write for Forbes, Psychology Today, Harvard Business Review, Nature. You know, I would. Doctor and I write for a lot of the academic journals. But here I was in below average in vocabulary Hmm. and average in reading comprehension.
1: Who'd have thought?
2: Who would would have thought? Now, where was I off the charts? Language. Hmm. I, I don't even know how to decipher that one. Now, where was I above average? math math computation math applications anything having to do with math so i went into finance that was my original career i'm good at it yeah jethro i hated it i left after two years it wasn't for me i was good at i got tenure in nine months who gets tenure in nine months yeah but i didn't like it so you know, you were talking about standards and compliance and, you know, this, the Stanford achievement test, I, Oh, I, I pull out, it's in my desk drawer. I pull it out every so often because you know what it tells me? Absolutely
1: nothing. That's right.
2: Absolutely nothing (laughs) to go figure.
1: (laughs) So we put all this emphasis on something that is easily, uh, um, Nick Fisher calls it legislatively convenient, Because it's easy to look at a score and say, this is what this kid got. And I remember that I became a teacher because I wanted to teach people. And then I realized that there are lots of ways to teach people besides being in a K-12 classroom. And my narrowness of thought or whatever it was that made me not realize that early on made me think that if I like teaching, I should become a teacher. But the reality is I did not like being a teacher very much at all. I can do it and I'm great at it and it comes very easily, but I got bored really, really fast with it because it wasn't in my wheelhouse. And so teaching in other ways, like coaching people, everybody that I've coached in business has been more successful than me in business. And it's not because I don't know what I'm talking about. It's that I'm I'm better at coaching them than I am at actually doing the thing, And I think that's, that's a really interesting thing for people to understand what they actually care about.
2: Yeah. And it, you know what? It's, uh, it, it takes time to recognize that. It also takes time to recognize that what you enjoyed early on may not be the right path for you. Now, one of the things I have always known about myself was that I do not do well on standardized tests because I don't have a standard mind. That's what I tell people. (laughs) So when I went to get my doctorate, I wasn't scared about going to Columbia. I was not scared about taking classes. I was terrified of tests. And here I am an adult with my own children. So I needed a plan because I knew tests were not going to work. I cannot regurgitate on command. So I actually asked in advance for the syllabi of each and every class. And I would look through it. Now, when you're in grad school, there's different themes and you have multiple classes within each theme and you have to take two out of three, three out of five within each theme. If there was a test, I wouldn't take that class. Mm. I would look through the syllabus and I always opted for the classes that had papers or projects. Mm -hmm. And that's how I succeeded. Because I was aware enough to know that to set myself up for success, there was no point in trying to teach myself how to get through tests. I wasn't going to learn. I was going to learn it for the test and then forget. That's not why I went to school. I wanted to learn it so I can use it. And I knew the way to do that for me and how I excel was papers and projects. Mm-hmm. Figured that out and did it.
1: Yeah. And I, on the other hand, I'm really good at taking tests and I can go into most tests, not prepared at all and figure out how to do pretty well on them. And so how does that help me in real life? Guess what? It doesn't. It's like the world's most useless skill, but I still have it. Um, did you teach
2: STEM? Did you teach STEM? I
1: did not. No, like, I taught English.
2: Really? Because usually those who, who like uh, STEM, they like the multiple choice. There's a right answer. There's a wrong answer. There's no gray mm-hmm. where I live in a world of gray.
1: Yeah. Yep.
2: I live with the different variations of normal. That's my happy place. So that's fascinating that you like multiple choice.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> you, you obviously know yourself quite well. What advice would you give to people besides the passion audit, which they should definitely do at RuthGotian.com slash passion audit. Definitely do that. But what else would you say to help, you know, more about yourself and become more self-aware?
2: So I think surrounding yourself with a team of mentors
1: is critical. These are people who
2: believe in you more than you believe in yourself. Sometimes you are so deep inside the jar, you can't read the label. You have lost all perspective. You need people like that who can tell you, you know, it's not as bad as you think. You can do it. Let's figure out some ways. They'll also bring things to light that you may not be aware of at all. And that's why you need those people. And you need them at three different levels. You need people who are senior to you at your level and people who are junior to you. Now, in the book, I talk a lot about how to approach and not approach potential mentors. And I'll give everyone a hint. Never, ever, ever ask anyone when you first meet them, will you be my mentor? Mentoring is a relationship. It is based on people who know, like, and trust you. You wouldn't ask someone to marry you the first time you meet them. You don't ask someone to mentor you the first time you meet them. You want to be able to give more than you receive. Once they get to know, like, and trust you, you will see without ever asking they will mentor you because people like diamonds in the rough
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they want to help you succeed.
1: Yeah. So I asked Deborah this because she talks a lot about mentoring, as you can imagine, Deborah Heiser one of the challenges people face is they feel like they can't bring anything to the table for a mentor relationship when they're, Mm -hmm. when they want to learn from that other person. So what would be the things you suggest they bring to the table to make it a give and take and not just a take?
2: Everyone, everyone has someone and something that they can offer. I am helping a Nobel prize winner right now who has a book. He's extremely well-known in the scientific community, has no idea how to do book marketing, zero. I am a generation younger than him Mm -hmm. and I am mentoring him on book marketing. I am referring him to certain people that he should speak with. He didn't know about this world. This is not his world at all. So this is a small piece that I am able to help him with. And I am able to do this on repeat over and over and over again, making connections, bringing up ideas. There's somebody I spoke to this morning, an engineer with a PhD in engineering. And he doesn't know how to do, he has trouble with outbound communication. And he doesn't know how to communicate in non-engineering language to lay audiences. It's all about taking your complex message and decipher and making it in, filtered in a way that the everyday person can understand it and buy into it. So these are the types of things that you can help with. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter what generation you're from. There's always something that you can teach someone else. You've got a superpower. You just need to figure out what it is.
1: That's right. And it goes back to the previous question of how do you figure out more about who you are? And, and then also recognizing that other people may not be as open about what they need, but that if you listen yeah. closely, they'll be able to express it. So let me ask you a direct question about these two examples you shared. Did these people come to you specifically for those things then and you're shaking your head no for those who can't see you (laughs) then how how did this relationship come up that you would be able to help them with something
2: right so i study high achievers so i routinely talk to astronauts and olympians and nba champions and nobel prize winners so that's not new and many of them have become good friends and when I was talking to one of them, we were just talking about different things. We're not always talking about work and my research. And I somehow mentioned that I was on this podcast, I was on the show, you know, whatever, why are you doing that? And I said, because I have a new book out. That's how are people going to know about it? You know, my family all bought it, but you know, everyone (laughs) else needs to get the book, right? So he said, well, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? What do I mean? I said, I've done 120 podcasts. He said, what? I said, how many have you done? He said, I, I don't, I don't even know how to, what's a podcast. Uh-huh. So I said, so this is how we got into this whole conversation about it. And I said, well, are you willing to try? And he said, yes. Cause that by the way, is a sign of a high achiever. Mm-hmm. They fear not trying more than they fear failing. So he said, yeah. So it started with one and then another one. And I had him on my show. And before you know it, he's now a regular. He's a pro.
1: That's awesome.
2: (laughs) And he keeps saying, Ruth, do you have any more?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great because you shared how these things in a real relationship, they happen naturally, right? And that is, that's so vital. And, and, and I think this equates to principals helping teachers that, If you are paying attention and are treating it as a real relationship, then you are going to find ways that you can help them, things they need, and it's going to end up being a good, positive experience. So the last question I'd like to ask you, Ruth, is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal?
2: One thing a principal can do is start with your teachers. See where they are most curious and start delving into that. And if you do it for the teachers, they'll do it for the students.
1: Yeah, that is that is very true. So if you'd like to learn more about Ruth, go to ruthgotian.com. Her book, The Success Factor, is fantastic. You should definitely check it out. And Ruth, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.